Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. So, I'm excited to talk about jhana today. We've been talking about talking about it for a while. So, I've left myself some room. There's so many different ways to talk about this subject. I'm not sure exactly the best way to go about it. I was looking over uh, all of the different Dharma talks I've given over the last, like, 10 years on this subject. And every time I talk about it, I come, like, come to the topic from a completely different perspective. It's a huge topic. It is fun to talk about, though. So I put together, like, five or six different ways of looking at this, and we'll see if this can help some of us to better understand what the jhanas are and how helpful it is to practice how it fits into the Eightfold Path and this kind of stuff. Uh, I thought it would be cool to to actually start off by just acknowledging that the the topic of jhana is way confusing. It's totally confusing to most of us. It, it has been for me even before I had the experience and then even after the experience. It still, may, it still sort of keeps a confusing air to it. And I wanted to explain why this is for those who've both experienced it or those who have not yet experienced it, why this is so uh, confusing because there's a lot of confusion around it. So a couple things just to know that the, the theory of the jhanas and the actual experience is challenging. It's just no matter how we do it, it's, it's challenging to figure out. So... The, the theory about jhana is challenging because there's a huge debate around what jhana is. So scholars and teachers of different traditions, they heatly debate what it is that we say or what we're talking about when we, when we say jhana, when we use the term jhana. So if you start off confused, in part, everybody is confused and there isn't really a consensus on what it is or how it's used. So it's confusing to begin with. And there are actually... If you look at the suttas, if you look at the Pali suttas, which is where we get Theravada Buddhism, and then a little bit later on, a couple hundred years, no, maybe more than that, definitely in the hundreds of years, we have the Vasudhimaga, which is the commentaries on the Pali suttas. And if you look at these two sets of teachings, you'll see that the description of jhanas changes in that hundred year period, hundreds of years period between the two sets of texts. So much so that oftentimes people say there's actually multiple early schools of jhana practice. So depending on which book you're reading and who's teaching it, you could be getting a whole different set of instructions around um, the jhana. So if you have been confused, they're rightfully so. It, it's a confusing topic. It's confusing to scholars. It's confusing to teachers. Different lineages have different ways of going about it. So it's just not easy to go grab a book or get someone to teach this topic. Um, it's just tough. So you're all in the same boat. <laughs> That's what I wanted to say to start off with. I wanted to uh, just go down the list of a few common things that you may have heard about jhana from different perspectives, from different teachers. And one of the big debates around jhana is whether it's even necessary for practice. 
So this is one of the things that some lineages, some teachers don't think that jhana is necessary for enlightenment. So uh, I was reading a essay by Achan Brahm and Achan Brahm says, without jhana, there's no enlightenment. So he took the stance that, okay, we have to have the jhanas for enlightenment. Then I was reading another essay by Bhikkhu Bodhi. So these are two big heavy hitters in the Dharma. Achan Brahm, Bhikkhu Bodhi. Bhikkhu Bodhi says that the jhanas are necessary for uh, stream entry, the first part of enlightenment, but not necessarily for, um, wait, let me say that again, not necessary for enlightenment in the beginning stages, that we can experience enlightenment without jhana. But if we want to get deeper into enlightenment, the the upper stages of enlightenment told to for to full arhanthood, then you would need the jhanas. So these are like major teachers in the Dharma who have slightly different takes on whether or not jhana is even something we should be concerned about, something we should be practicing. When there's a whole set of schools in Burma, Mahasayadao tradition, where we have this thing called dry insight, where the jhana practices aren't really done at all. Right? Jhana is not really considered to be a part of the teaching. So depending on where you've come in your dharma, you may or may not have any teachings around the subject, or you may have had a lot of teachings around the subject. So this is what brings it to sort of confusion when we talk about it, because no one really has any consensus on what this is or whether or not we should be learning it. So uh, I'm hoping to clarify a little bit of that along the way. Another challenging part of jhana as an experience, and I'll get to defining it in a few minutes, so hang in here with me. Another thing about jhana that's difficult is that jhana is a very subtle meditative experience, something that's happening inside. It's in our internal world, and we don't have a common language to describe what's going on. And so what I mean by that is that if I were to ask you to do something in the external world, if I were to say, hey, can you go to your bookshelf and take a book off the shelf? Can you open it to page 200? And then once you're on page 200, can you find the second paragraph and read for me the second word of the second paragraph? And then can you tell me what the second letter of that second word is? That's a lot of instructions and somewhat subtle, but you could do it because you and I share a common language of being able to move objects or do things in the external world. We have a shared language for how things look and how things feel. And even though we experience things different as individuals, we have enough of a common language that we can guide each other through particular processes through language without getting too much confusion. I was on the phone the other day with someone who was helping me fix my computer. And I'm bad with computers, and so I was on the phone with the tech person, and they were walking me through the process of fixing the computer. Go to this folder, go to this drop-down menu, click here, drag this here, load this up, and then it started working. Because we have a shared language. I know what a drop-down folder is. I know what it means to say click and drag. I know these terms, so someone can guide me through an experience, and we can both have the same result and know that we're having the same result. That is not what happens when we start teaching meditation or we talk about subtler experience that happens in deep meditation states. So if I tell you to grab a book off your bookshelf, that's really easy. But if I were to say, use awareness to engage in directed thought and evaluation to calm bodily formations, 
that's a little bit different. It's a little bit weirder to start talking about the inner world with this vocabulary. Like, what are we talking about? If I say infuse your whole body with breath energy or breath awareness, how do we know that we're talking about the same thing? How do we know we're doing the same thing and experiencing the same thing with this language? Or one of the things we do in the jhanas, if, if I were to say, like, infuse your whole body with the quality of rapture, and then hold rapture in awareness, and then look inside the rapture for a subtler energy that's slightly calmer, take that energy and move it into the body, <laughs> you'd call an ambulance. It'd be like, what the heck is going on with these requests? So it's really important to know that part of the challenge of jhana really is two big things. One, there's no consensus between traditions and teachings on really what it is and how we're supposed to practice. And then when you do find yourself in a particular school of thought, then you have to figure out the words that the teachers are using to engage in this internal experience that you've never had before. So it's difficult to know if we're actually having the experience. Oftentimes students say, well, I think I've had a jhana experience. I mean, I kind of think I have, maybe, I don't know. And so I have a lot of conversations uh, with students about whether or not they've actually had the experience of jhana. It's difficult. It's difficult to see the subtleties of the energy that's moving in the body. So if you've ever been confused about this, it's all good. This is exactly what we've all had to go through uh, when we're learning the jhanas. One more thing I wanted to comment on about learning the jhanas, and this just comes from being a teacher for the last decade or so. Oftentimes, if a student comes to me and is interested in the jhanas and thinks think they're having the experience and wants some guidance around the practices, when I begin to explain to them what the, well, from one school of thought, what we do in jhana, oftentimes student will say, this doesn't feel like meditation. This feels like, like something different than what I'm used to. And usually what they're referring to is the fact that at the point in our practice when we're experiencing what we call jhana, we're doing a lot of activity in the meditation. And this is really important to know is that the jhana part of the path is quite active. It's quite engaging. We're doing things. We're moving energy. We're moving awareness. Where in the first part of our practice, we're doing a lot more letting go, cultivating equanimity, being still, allowing things to kind of rise and pass. We're not doing as much in the beginning stages of practice, but as practice stabilizes and we move into the jhanas, we're asked to do things and do quite a bit actually. So sometimes people think that the jhanas don't really coalesce with their normal vipassana practice. So it tends to make people feel like they're ruining their meditation or they're doing a different kind of meditation. But I just wanted to assure you that the jhanas are an essential part of the Buddha's teachings. They are in the suttas, they're in the texts. And when you're engaging in the practice, even though it's true that it's a far more active part of the meditation, it is just another part of vipassana. It's just another part of vipassana. So for example, you know, think of how different when you start a meditation and you're just being mindful of breathing, right? Breath, body, body's breathing. That's a certain part of Vipassana practice. Now, another part of Vipassana practice is loving kindness. Now, loving kindness is far more active. We're wishing people well. We're wishing well for ourselves. We're using aphorisms or suttas that we say either out loud or internally. And one could say, well, is loving kindness and breath, body awareness, is that even the same practice? Is this still Vipassana? 
The answer would be yes. Loving kindness practice and breath body awareness are two aspects of Satipatthana practice. One is far more active and one is more passive, but they're still part of the same toolbox of experiences. And jhana is the same way. It's just another aspect of practice that eventually you get into. So I just wanted to normalize the stress and struggle that a lot of people have, myself included, with this practice, understanding what it is, and um, just saying, yeah, it's it's confusing. It's confusing for all of us. So let's, I thought what I would do first and foremost is really clearly define it. I think part of the confusion that we have when we practice is that the definitions can be very confusing. So what I put together is just a series of ways of understanding how it's defined. So if you're reading a book or you have a teacher who's teaching you, you'll sort of be able to orient yourself to what this practice is. So if you're looking to understand jhanas, you're going to go to the concentration fold of the eightfold path. So of the eight folds of the path, concentration is one of our folds, right? Concentration is one of the folds of the eightfold path. It is under the concentration factor or fold that we find the practices of jhana. That's where you find them. Now, it's important to know that concentration as a term, samadhi, as we know it, concentration or samadhi, is seen throughout the traditional Buddha's teachings. We see it everywhere on the path. The main places we see it, though, are in one of the folds of the path. So one of the folds is concentration. Concentration is also one of the factors of awakening. One of the enlightenment factors is also concentration. And when the Buddha divides the path, there's this famous, I guess you'd say trinity, <laughs> if you will, uh, another spiritual trinity. When the Buddha divides the path into three main parts, he divides the path into precepts or ethical and moral behavior, concentration, and wisdom. So when we see these big... Um, trinities in the Dharma, one of the main sections is concentration. So it's just important to know that concentration as a topic, samadhi, is huge in the Dharma. And it's under that heading that we find the jhanas. I wanted to help us define concentration because the jhanas are concentration states. And I wanted to help us define concentration because the word concentration is a translation of the word samadhi. And samadhi actually has like five different qualities to it that are supposed to be embedded in the term concentration. And I think if we can understand what samadhi means, the jhanas will make a lot more sense. When we translate samadhi into the English word concentration, one of the challenges with the word concentration is that we tend to associate it with straining, like I'm really concentrated, and that sense of being concentrated has a tension in it. It has a contraction often. And so sometimes when people begin to practice concentration practices, they think that there is a struggle, a strain, or a really intense effort that needs to be exerted. And that's not true. So part of it is just that we have this association with the word concentration that makes us feel like, oh, I've been concentrating on this thing for hours and now I have a headache. So it's not always a positive word for us when we say we're concentrated. You know, if you had a choice to be concentrated all day 
or not concentrated, which one sounds like it would be more pleasurable, right? And it's like, but in the Dharma, we want to be concentrated all day because it's not straining. So I just wanted to make that distinction. So concentration is not a contraction of the heart. And sometimes we think that it is and it gets us confused. It actually is a relaxed, very relaxed, peaceful, peaceful state. So samadhi, let me give you the different words associated with this term. I think this is really interesting. So the term samadhi taken literally means non-distractedness, not distracted. So we translate that into concentration, which is interesting, but the general transliteration is undistractedness, non-distracted mind. That's what samadhi means. It's an undistracted mind. We translate it as concentration. Sam in samadhi, sam means together and da means to put or place. So there's this idea of bringing something together in a particular place. And that's where we translate concentration. So we're bringing something together in a particular place, samadhi. Now, there are other etymologies of this word that bring about some other nuances in the definition. So I'm going to read them so you can hear the differences in these terms. One is unification, one-pointed attention, singleness of mind, gathering place, or the top of something, like the summit of a mountain. So if you listen to these words, we have gathering together, that's common, gathering together, a one-pointedness, like we're gathering energy around a particular point. There is unification, so there's some unity going on with concentration. And there's this sense of summit or peak, like a mountain. So all of those terms, we sort of take them all and we say, oh, it's concentration. But concentration doesn't have the coloring of gathering together, one-pointed attention, unification. Those are the words that you want to think of when you think of jhana. That's what samadhi really is supposed to invoke. It's not just focus. It's a lot more subtle than that. And there's an emotional tone to it that has a sense of unification, which I'll clarify in a second. So that's the word samadhi that we take as concentration. This is how we generally define jhana in light of samadhi. And this will be clearer in a second. Jhana is commonly defined as a deep state of concentration. A deep state of concentration or absorption where you have the following experiences. An unwavering attention a sense of unity with the object that you're focusing on, a sense of fullness in the body, like you're being filled up with the object that you're focusing on, and a sense of significant pleasure. That's usually how jhana is defined. It's a state of concentration, but the, the word samadhi, let's say it's a state of samadhi, so that includes all those other words, right? It's a state of samadhi or absorption that's characterized by an unwavering attention that has a sense of unity and fullness and pleasure with the object that we're focusing on. So to clarify what this means experientially, when we talk about jhana, we're talking about samadhi that has matured to the point where, let's say you're taking the breath as an object. If the breath is my object and I'm starting to establish jhana, then 
it's going to feel like the breath has been filling up my body, that I am at one with the breath. There is a sense of absorption into breathing, like a full body awareness. And there's a sense of pleasantness in the breathing that almost feels like it's saturated in the entire body. So you start off by being aware of breath, but then breath, you fall into it like you're in a bathtub full of breath, right? You're soaking and being saturated by the object that you're focusing on. That's the quality that we're talking about with jhana. It's a concentration state that's very deep, not strained, but just deep. You're just very immersed in the object. And that's really the quality of samadhi is immersion into the object, a sense of unity, a sense of wholeness, a sense of fullness that arises in your meditation practice. Now, when you take this in light of what we say samadhi is, basically you're gathering together your energy or your mindfulness on your object. That's the gathering together. You're keeping the energy there one pointed, just keeping it on the breath. And then you're undistracted. You're just staying with the object. So the jhana implies that the mind is really able to rest with the object without wandering away. That's what allows you to feel like you're absorbed into it. I'll clarify this in a second, but basically the thing to know when you hear the word jhana, it's just important to know that jhana is just a depth of concentration. It's just what happens when concentration ripens and bears the fruit of pleasure. So you're concentrated enough to be really absorbed in the breathing body or the energy of gratitude or the energy of loving kindness. That's what we mean by jhana in its simplest form. It's just the absorbing into the experience so deeply that the mind doesn't wander. It just takes refuge in the experience. Now, as you imagine, it takes some time to get there because most of the time when we're meditating, the mind's wandering around. So that's something to know. I'm going to explain this from a different perspective. And this also, I think, is helpful. Earlier, I said jhana was a part of concentration, and it is. That's true. It is a concentrative state. But concentration always has a best friend, and the best friend is mindfulness. We never have concentration without its buddy, mindfulness. It's mindfulness and concentration together that really give rise to what we call jhana. The mindfulness and concentration come together, and that's re really where jhana is born. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. Part of the reason in all my other teachings I define mindfulness and concentration the way I do, which I'll reiterate in a second, is because it helps understand the jhanas when we finally get to the jhana experience. So mindfulness, as you know, I always tend to define it in the simplest terms. Mindfulness just means holding something in awareness, keeping something in mind. That, that's mindfulness. I have this intention to keep the breath in mind. I'm going to be aware of breathing. I'm going to keep the sensations of my hand in mind. Mindfulness of hand. Very simple. So mindfulness is that intention to bring awareness and sustain the attention on an object. I pick an object. I sustain my awareness on the object. That's mindfulness but then the mind wanders. So we have the intention to initiate mindfulness and sustain it, and then the mind wanders away. And then we wake up to wandering mind and we bring it back 
to the object. That process is really what we say when we're saying I'm being mindful. So to say I'm being mindful is to say I've intentionally chosen an object, I've found the object, I've got it in awareness, and now I'm trying to sustain it. Oh, my mind wandered, but when it wanders, I'm bringing it back. That whole process is mindfulness. If you continue to bring the mind back, the mind starts to stay with the object. The ability to actually keep the mind with the object, that's concentration. Concentration is our ability to string together moments of mindfulness. Concentration, samadhi, is our ability to take a mindful moment and turn it into a second mindful moment and a third mindful moment and a fourth mindful moment. Concentration just measures how continuous our mindfulness is. So if I'm sitting in meditation, like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I had a ridiculous meditation this morning. I hate to say a meditation was terrible, but it was like a terrible meditation. I sat for an hour with absolutely no mindfulness, like at all. It was, I got done with it and I was so disappointed. It was just off. My mind was racing. I was so stressed. I had a bad, I had a hard week and my meditation was just all over the place. I kept looking at the timer and I couldn't believe I still had time left because I just wanted to get up. Uh, there was no concentration. So what I mean by that is, sure, there were moments of mindfulness, but it was really hard to keep the mindfulness going. I would be mindful for a couple seconds and then the mind would start being angry at something and then I'd bring it back and it Go stress out about something else. So I would say there wasn't a lot of concentration in that sit, meaning I couldn't really string together moments of mindfulness. There wasn't a lot of samadhi. I wasn't really with the breath. There wasn't a sense of really feeling into it, being unified. I struggled to gather my energy around the body and really feel into the body. So it was still, you know, I was practicing Vipassana, but mostly I was just hanging out with the wandering mind. There just wasn't a lot of concentration. So when we use the word concentration and mindfulness, it helps to really understand those distinctions because that's what allows us to see how jhana works. So here is a definition of jhana that takes into account mindfulness and concentration. So this is how I like to write this out. Concentration is continuous and sustained mindfulness that results in a mind that is undistracted and can remain on a single object without wandering off. If it's sustained long enough, it results in a state of absorption known as jhana that is characterized by clarity, pleasure, and ease. So I'll read it again. Concentration, samadhi, is continuous and sustained mindfulness that results in a mind that is undistracted from the hindrances, undistracted, and can remain on a single object without wandering off. If it's sustained long enough, it results in a state of absorption known as jhana that is characterized by a sense of clarity, pleasure, and ease. That's the clearest I've come up with, and that's a combination probably of four different teachers talking about, <laughs> talking about the jhanas. So, I wanted to put that out there so you can see that the jhana is not something different from what you're practicing. When mindfulness and concentration come together and start maturing, as the wandering mind starts to settle down, we enter into what we call jhana, 
which is a continuous state of concentration that starts to bring pleasure into our practice. That's really the simplest way that I have come up to describe it. Now, it can get very complicated, but we're not going there today. I'll, I'll add some things later on, but not today. So that's, that's jhana, right? That's the basic definition of jhana. And so a main take-home I'd, I'd like you just to remember is just to keep in mind that what you're already doing in your practice, no matter what you're practicing, whether it be loving kindness, or if you're paying attention to breath at the tip of the nose, or whether you're paying attention to the rising and falling of the abdomen, or you're doing body scanning practice or mantra practice, no matter what basic Buddhist practices you're doing, all of them include mindfulness. And when the mind wanders, we bring the mind back. And eventually that mindfulness gets continuous. So most Buddhist practices, no matter what they are, can result in absorption. The jhana will eventually arise as we continue to do it. You can use walking meditation as a foundation for entering jhana. You can use loving kindness as a foundation. You can use body sweeping. So it's just important to know that it's not a separate practice. It's just the depth of the practice that you're already doing. So that's the main thing I wanted you to hear in the practice. Again, this will get clearer the more we talk about the details of what it is. I wanted to give you one more metaphor that I came up with years ago now um, in my Eightfold Path class that I used to teach at PIMC. I taught that class for like four years. In the few times that I was trying to teach jhanas way, way back then, I was trying to come up with a variety of metaphors to help people understand uh, what the experience of jhana was. So one of the metaphors I came up with that was helpful for me goes like this. So imagine that you're driving in a car and you're in the passenger seat. Someone else is driving. You're in the passenger seat and you're on the freeway and you're going decently fast, right? 70 miles an hour. And you're looking out the window at the stuff that's passing by. Now, when you're on the freeway and you're looking out the window going 70 miles an hour, you can definitely see things, right? You can see parking lots and Taco Bell signs and Burger King, then another strip mall and then another Burger King. You can see things going by. You know that they're there, but you can't see them clearly. You're going by at 70 miles an hour. You see that there's a restaurant but you're not going to be able to see what's inside the restaurant. You're not going to probably see people walking in and out necessarily. You might see a parking lot. You might see a movie theater, whatever you're looking at. Or maybe you're, you know, in a rural area and you're seeing cows or something. You might notice that a cow is there, but you're not going to be able to see the details of the cow because you're moving so quickly. That's the normative speed of the mind. The normative speed of the mind is like a car on a freeway. It's really hard to see detail and subtlety in our lives when our minds are moving that fast. The kinetic energy of the wandering mind is very fast. Notice how quickly the mind wanders. It's just gone. And then sometimes you're gone for 10 minutes before you even know to come back. So the wandering mind is like being in a car driving really fast and trying to look out the window to see things and navigate what's going on around you. Now, as mindfulness matures, the car begins to slow down. And as you're looking out the window, you begin to see more detail because the engine of the mind, the vehicle of the mind has started to slow down. So the closer you get to jhana, the slower the car becomes. Now, 
imagine now that your driver has stopped on the freeway and now you're not going any mile. Let's say you're in a traffic jam. So now you're just stopped on the freeway. If you look over and you see, say, a parking lot, you might be able to watch people like walking to their cars. You might be able to identify the colors of their clothing. You might be able to see that they have a bag from a certain store or like a Starbucks cup. Because you're not moving, not only are you going to see the person, but you're going to see details. You're going to see interactions. You're going to be able to discern things, as we say in the Dharma, that you couldn't discern at all before because of the speed that consciousness goes. The maturing of mindfulness is the stopping of the car. As mindfulness gets mature, we can just sit in the present moment and we can just watch. We're going at a slower pace. We're not wandering. We're just able to be attentive. Jhana is when the driver hands you a pair of binoculars. That's jhana. Jhana is when mindfulness has stopped the car and you now have this inordinate experience to be able to see really clearly into the mind and heart in the present moment as things are rising and passing away. The jhanas are like a magnifying glass for mindfulness. It's a deep state of clarity because you're one with the object. You're so close to it that you can see all the details. The sense of absorption is that you're absorbing into that which you're looking at so closely that all of the details of impermanence can be seen. The details of not self can be seen. Dukkha, <laughs> for good or ill, can be seen. So one way of looking at jhana is just that it's a magnifying glass for mindfulness. Mindfulness helps us to slow down the wandering mind. But jhana is the mind has stopped and now you can just sit there and really watch what's going on. One of the characteristics of jhana is that the mind doesn't wander in it. It just stays there. It's just there with breath. It doesn't go anywhere. And it sort of sits there and enjoys being in the present moment. So that's a part of the jhanic experience. And I think that helps people to understand like what it is experientially. Now, most of us have at some point in our experience in meditation experienced one of the following things. One, we've experienced continuity of mindfulness. We've been able to focus on the breath. And maybe it's just three minutes, right, of just real sense of breathing in and breathing out, you know, or maybe you're doing a body scan and all of a sudden you really, awareness is just really full in the body. You're noticing your posture and the uprightness and the curve of the arms and your feet on the floor and your butt on the cushion. And there's a real sense of being in the meditation. That's part of the absorption, that really deep sense of, ah, now I'm meditating. I'm really in the meditation. Most of us have had at least a few seconds, if not a few minutes, of this kind of experience. Also, more than likely, anyone who's here tonight or listening to this has had the experience of some sense of relaxation or ease in your meditation. You've had a sense of pleasure somewhere in your meditation, right? Those are factors of jhana. Those are called jhana factors. Those are the qualities that when mature become jhana. So most people without knowing it are already experiencing little bits and pieces of what we call factors of jhana, heart-mind qualities that give rise to deep concentration. 
The difference between experiencing these qualities on occasion and having what's called the jhana experience is just that all the qualities happen at the same time and are very balanced. And that's when this other experience arises. So most of us have had concentration. We know what it feels like to have samadhi. We know what it feels like, you know, part of the reason we gladden the heart is to cultivate tranquility, a sense of ease in the meditation. If you can feel a sense of ease or if you can smile, like feel that smile when you're doing compassion practice, that's the quality of jhana. That's what that is. You've done it. You've already been cultivating part of the jhanas. So most everyone, by the time they desire to practice jhana, have already been doing a bunch of different parts of it. They just haven't been aware and they haven't known how to put together all of the pieces to bring the whole experience into being. So I hope that's a positive thing just to say almost everyone has experienced one part of these qualities. The distinction is when they all come into balance and you can really sustain them for a longer period of time, then there's an intensity to it that's noticeable and that's what becomes what we call the jhana. Two of the real benefits of these heart-mind qualities that we call the jhana factors. One is the pleasure that comes from the ease. When we can sustain concentrate, when we can sustain mindfulness long enough that it becomes concentrative or absorptive, it's very pleasurable. And that pleasure increases the possibility that the mind will just rest in the present moment. So our ability to cultivate this jhanic experience benefits us because it prolongs our ability to be present. We start to enjoy the meditation more when we can have a sense of pleasure and tranquility in the practice. So that's one huge benefit. Another benefit of learning to make this shift between just having the qualities kind of happen randomly and learning to actually bring them into being is that the Buddha describes the pleasure of jhana as a blameless happiness. He considers it to be spiritual food. So the pleasure of the jhanas, or just saying the pleasure of concentration or pleasure of mindfulness, gives you a pleasure that you've created for yourself on the inside. It doesn't harm anybody, has no carbon footprint. It doesn't require you to consume or be involved in craving or aversion. You don't have to be jealous about it or covetous of it. It's just this natural, beautiful state of pleasure that you've cultivated within yourself. It's an inside job, right? And so that's another benefit. The Buddha calls the pleasure of jhana to be a blameless happiness, meaning a skillful and ethical happiness or a pleasure, sorry, pleasure. So that's one aspect of the benefit. And the second benefit, which I had said before, but just to clarify, is simply that the jhana, by the time you're really mature in your concentration practice, you're basically anchored in the present moment. And we have to remember that life is occurring in the present moment. That's where all of our habits exist. That's where all of our future planning exists. That's where all of our regrets and resentments and wounds exist. Jhana is just the cultivation and maturity of mindfulness to such a degree that we can really anchor ourselves and absorb ourselves in true present moment awareness. And when we can do that, that's where we have real access to freedom. That's where we have access to really look into our past without reacting. 
look intentionally into the future without craving or fear or aversion. So the jhana is just that maturity of mindfulness that really gives us a deep present moment experience. And since freedom only exists in one place, the present moment, the jhana is helpful because now we can really indwell the present moment. We can really see anicca, dukkha, anatta. There's those binoculars that really allow us to be discerning. And so it increases our skill and practice. So those are two... Uh, Two things that the Buddha says. The quote, actually, I wrote this quote down from before. The Buddha says this about pleasure. He says, we feed on the pleasure of concentration like radiant gods. We feed on the pleasure of concentration like radiant gods. So that's my introduction, my friends. That's just kind of an overview of what this bizarre and crazy term <laughs> jhana <laughs> refers to. Uh, I hope that helps just give you an orientation. But I wanted to say that the next part of what I will talk about is going to be walking you through how do you move from your basic meditation into the state, into the state of, how do you get there, right? How do you do it? How do you do that process? How do you take what you've already experienced and just um, learn to do different things with it to expand your practice? So I will go into, I'll create some, I'll create a handout that will give details on the uh, jhana factors and how they relate to the enlightenment factors. So you'll have something to to have for yourself to refer back to. And I will walk you through the process of the four jhanas, how they each um, how they each work. So that would be the next step. And it'll be clearer in, at that point. So thanks for hanging in there with me. <laughs> it's a confusing topic. Ah, my friends, thank you so much for the generosity of your hearts this evening. Thanks so much for stopping by and joining. I realize I have gone over. Um, for those who need to leave, may you be well. For those who can stay and do a few minutes of meta, I'll still do some meta, but I just wanted to wish you all well and thank you for coming. And uh, we'll talk about this some more next week. Let's plop into some loving kindness practice, which can also be used for jhana. Let's return to the body breathing, bringing awareness as fully into the body as possible in this moment. Noticing the whole body sitting from the head to the feet, from the shoulders to the hands. Full body breathing. And with awareness, filling the body with each breath. Let us call to the altar of our hearts, our highest aspiration to be free from suffering. Let's wish ourselves well. 
May we be safe and free from harm. May our hearts be open to joy and tranquility. May we know true kindness, true love, and true compassion in this very life. We can take refuge in the practice of this evening. The blessing of community and blessing of the Dharma. May our practice lead us to liberation in this lifetime. And as always, though we practice for ourselves, our highest aspiration is for all beings to be free from suffering. May all beings be free from danger, worry, and concern. May all beings be free from harm. May our dear planet be free from harm, be free from suffering. May all beings know true love, true joy and delight in this very life. Thank you, my friends. Be well, be safe. Look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.